Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Okay, thank you for being on, Don. Um, and it really is a pleasure to have you on uh, as you are the OG and somebody who has been part of the occult scene for as long as I've been in it. And so it's an honor to have you on at last. Uh, do you want to tell people about a little bit about who you are and your work and your new book, Modern Magus, a manual for magicians of all schools, how to become a modern Magus, excuse me. Well, <clears throat> The way I began my work is uh, I had been an initiate of the Temple of Set for some years. <clears throat> and when I approached the fourth degree, which is the degree of Magister Temple, my initiator, Stephen Flowers, said, you need to do something that's a masterpiece. You need to put something that's out in the world that exists independently of you. And up to that time, I had just written uh, fiction, and mainly I'm, I'm known as a fiction writer. So that began my attempt at starting writing uh, books explaining techniques to people. And my first few books were centered entirely within the tradition that I grew up in. Then a few years ago, I had people approach me and said, hey, I want to learn how to be a, a magician. I want to learn magical skills. And I said, okay, you know, I'll sponsor you into the temple and you can do that. I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I have found my religious path. I just want magical skills and I'll pay you to teach me. And I was at a loss because that was not um, not my inventory in any way, because all my inventory, the way I had learned things, was on a devotional, focused spiritual basis. And so I started thinking about what are the skills, particularly in the Western magical tradition, that are necessary, and what are the things that we learn that aren't so necessary. And so I began kind of creating a repertoire. Then uh, a few years ago, as you probably read about in the papers, uh, there was a COVID-19 e epidemic in uh, I heard something America. about that. <laughs> I heard it, yeah. So uh, I was home a lot. And I thought, all right, I'm going to go through the very processes I'm teaching. I'm going to put aside everything I know and play both the part of teacher and student and see what I can do in a year's time. And as I did that, I wrote a book called How to Be a Modern Magus. Uh, that wasn't, that wasn't it's not its original title, but Inner Traditions actually is the only published that I've ever dealt with 
that comes up with better titles. Um, like actually, the only publisher I've ever worked with with really improved books are kind of exciting people. To yeah, they changed, they changed the title on uh, my John D book as well for, for the best so that people would know it was a book about John D because John D was not in the title. So I think that was probably wise on their part. Well, they're, they're, they're just really good at that, right? I just think that they have a, a deep um, sensitivity to the gnosis that uh, is, is quite impressive. Yeah, they're great. Uh, and then in the course of my book, I considered several things. I started asking people what had screwed up their initiation. Because all the magicians I knew in, in, in every school all talked about the fact that it would start initiation, it would get sidelined, they would come back and redo it. And I thought, what if I designed a book where it had years worth of exercises, but it also had what I call the book of gates, which is, hey, if you hit with this crisis, like losing a job, starting a love affair, losing a love affair, um, bad health, what do you do? And that created the book. Um, it mainly exists within the, the Western tradition, but I tried not to make it just a clone of, like, say, Golden Dawn techniques. That's really, really great. That's interesting. So let's just circle back a little bit. So every magician or almost every magician, I assume you've talked to from any school has had that experience of getting knocked off path. Mm -hmm. and, and because when you enter into initiation, you're entering into a will state of saying everything in my life is meaningful. And that's how you transform yourself. But the problem is that then you can take negative messages as messages you should stop rather than enjoying the pain of the negative state yes. just as much. Let's, let's go straight for that. That is so, I feel like that's such a productive conversation to have because that's something that I have come up again. <laughs> I say come up again, I've come up against a lot. So I come up again against it all the time. Um, and that's always the question when you're in those states. And I'm trying to think back, I mean, uh, examples of my life, you know, moving, career changes, uh, obviously new starting a relationship where you suddenly have to change your kind of vibe. Uh, maybe somebody doesn't like magic as much as you ending a relationship. Um, or maybe I does, maybe does this count as well? Kind of like drama or collapse of magical groups. So that's something I've been in. I've been in all of these and my question to myself has always been exactly that. So let's just go for that. It's like, okay, like, am I getting messages to stop and slow down or should I push through? And I've never been totally clear on that. And, and it's always the lingering question is, did I do the right thing or did I fail the test? Quote unquote. Well, partially the question itself and that you deal with it is something that refines you. That is one of the fires of initiation, that fire of unknowing. But, um, we tell ourselves stories all the time. Uh, the act of magic, which we think we're learning, is, is not true. We do magic all the time, 24-7. We create these states and we live in them. The problem is we usually create not very good or perceptive states. Let's play this out in a story. Uh, one day, you, you, by a minor mistake, you screw up someone else's life. Let's say you, you turn in a report 10 minutes late. And the other guy is the one that takes the heat. First, they're mad at you. First, they're very angry at you. Then they forgive you. Seems like everything is smooth. But then you go on to have a really shitty day. 
nothing works right, you have a lot of red lights, you can't get what you want for lunch, whatever, whatever the minor inconveniences are that slowly mount up. And the time you go home, you have decided that you always screw things up. Now, the original problem, which existed not in your world, but this other human's world, you've taken it into yourself. You've built up this negative narrative. And then you're creating and summoning things based on that narrative. Now, then it's really easy to see how a non-controlled life produces stuff you don't want. But it can be the other side. It can be a very positive narrative you're telling yourself, making you feel really good till the moment that falls apart. Like a coping what strategy, a narrative you tell yourself to cope with. Like one that I always hear is like, oh, this, this, this had to happen for a reason. That type of thing. Well, it, it did have to happen for a reason, but not the reason you think. <laughs> it had to happen for the reason because you live in a three-dimensional body and you move through time. Uh, and so a lot of things are going to happen all the time. Which ones do you pay attention to? And that's one of the toughest things to figure out as a human being. And, and actually harder for magicians because we, yes. we look for omens and portents and dreams. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one, one thing that it's one thing that I think, you know, magical people are overly prone to at different steps of their initiatory journey. I think if, if magicians are going undergoing real initiation, quote unquote, they should hopefully be tempering everything they're doing with a fair degree of skepticism and scientific thinking and all that. But even so, um, I think magical thinkers in the broadest sense of the term uh, are very prone to over narrativization. Like for instance, everything in you're constantly living in this abyssal state where everything relates to you and the, the, you know, the numbers on the clock relate to you. The, uh, what people say to you suddenly has meaning upon meaning behind it when none of that is necessarily really there or at least should be focused on at all times. The, the actual magical discernment uh, comes from not the, the circumstance you see, but the feelings that come with it. Uh, true omens always have a sense of awe or wonder. But if you're just looking for omens, you'll find something and you'll worry it to death like a, like a dog with a toy. But things that overwhelm you, that bliss of the otherworldly, is what you started the path for to start with. That's what really drew you into it. Not, not, the, not the practical stuff, not the I'm going to use magic to get laid or get paid. Okay, that's, that's cool. Great. But what's important is a sense of wonder, which is much more rare. And it's something you can take with you, presumably, to your next life. Interesting. So say more about that. Take it with you to your next life. Well, I haven't experienced it, so this is speculative. Um, I tend to think, I tend to have kind of an Egyptian soul craft. An Egyptian soul craft would tell me. And I chose this not because aesthetically I'm attracted to Egyptian ideas, but because I can perceive them in my life. There are parts of you that are reused again and again until you become a consistent being. Your ka, whatever your ka is, may have been the ka of several humans before you. Your ba is the spirit you have right now, right here. 
Now, the purpose of life, according to the Egyptians, and when I say the Egyptians, I'm going to say specifically the Egyptians of the 18th to the 20th dynasties. I mean, Egypt is a really, really long history. Anyone who says 800 descendants begins the Egyptian, whatever, the sentence is wrong. You know, the sentence is always be the Egyptians during this period, whatever. Uh, the purpose of life is to fuse these two things, the soul of becoming, the Ba, and the soul of being, the Ka, into the effective soul, the Ach, so that you take with you the better parts of your personality now. And that puts an imperative on you not to be a jerk because you don't want to become an immortal, essential, unchanging jerk for all of eternity. That should not be anybody's goal, no matter how much of an asshole you might, might have started out as in your life. Mm, that's interesting. So I, I uh, do you remember the old World of Darkness games from the 90s? Like uh, a little werewolf. bit. Yeah, it, it, one of my hobbies is collecting these, and I was I've had an inter interesting experience a couple days ago actually where i was reading one of them that was talking about the egyptian parts of the soul and it actually they actually cited one of your books in it so that was an interesting synchronicity um i think they 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 uh yeah so but i it, it, it was just an interesting interesting experience because it reminded me of that egyptian model of the soul and i looked at it again and they just cited it for the game but it was it was the correct model and I feel like that's probably the most satisfying and complete model of aspects of your, you know, transpersonal self that I know of. I think probably more than Kabbalah or uh, maybe the Hindu model, maybe, maybe not as much as the Buddhist model, but I'm not quite as clear on the Tibetan model. Um, but it, it just seems so straightforward, practical and common sense when you look at it. Well, you had an, a unique situation in Egypt because you had a country that was very dense in terms of population, uh, but very small in terms of physical area. I mean, if you look at, at a map of Egypt, think, oh, like that's a big country. No, it's a tiny country because it just exists two miles on either side of the Nile. Huh. Because uh, in, the, in this desert, you, you have to be living in the area where you can grow food. Were people able to leave that area? Like, could they leave the water and crops and survive very long? Or did they have to be clustered there really tight in? They tended to be clustered, and they tended to look down on people that that came, that crossed the desert. In fact, the Egyptian word for foreigners is literally translated as the wretched crosser of deserts. <laughs> they they're, 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 they're really pull back on that idea. <laughs> but they were very open to ideas outside themselves. Uh, the Egyptians were an ethnically diverse uh, group of people. They uh, accepted you as Egyptian if you moved there and learned to speak Egyptian. That, that I've never heard before. And I, I, I feel like I keep wanting to go on everything. You, uh, there, there's so many fascinating tangents and the things that you're saying. So I don't want to get too off track here. But that is really interesting to me just because, you know, the ethnicity of Egyptians is you know, I've seen it go back and forth many times over my lifetime, and it seems to be a point of political tension between, or contention, um, much like the ethnicity of Jesus or something like this. But I have not heard that it was a multicultural society, and that's really interesting. Well, I'll consider that we have portraits of the pharaohs. And you have pharaohs that are uh, mostly looking Middle East, what you think of as Middle East, looking Arabic. 
but you also have red redhead pharaohs, you had blonde pharaohs, you had pharaohs with black skin. Mm-hmm. And nowhere does anyone say, hey, this this red-headed pharaoh, like the Ramesses family all had you know bright red hair. Uh no one says, hey, those guys aren't Egyptian. No, they're they're the head of the country. They're, mm. they're the living Horus. They're the embodiment of the, the culture. And you don't say a few years later, when you have pharaohs whose ancestry comes from Nubia, they're just as black as can be. Say, oh, they're not Egyptian. No, they're clearly the pharaoh. Had no problem with that in, in ways that, that we don't. We tend to view, uh, I mean, I, most of the ideas we have of race tend to come from uh, European, European colonialism. And, you know, and they were invented to, to put forth the idea that one group of people, i.e. white-skinned people with better weapons technology, were better than brown-skinned people with inferior weapons technology. Mm-hmm. And that seems to not Supposedly, really... They had better guns. And that seems to not really play out at all if you look back through history in terms of... His, like these, these cultures seem to have been pretty multicultural even England and, and I presume Rome and things like this were very cosmopolitan in, in the case of Rome, capitals of empires. So I imagine kind of everyone was there. You talk a lot about Egyptian soulcraft in the book. So how did this come through in a practical way in, or, or what did you recommend for people in engaging with this material? Well, first off, I want people to be aware as they develop their magical skills that they have a lot of things going on in their lives. And we tend at various times in our lives to become very attracted to one or another parts of our uh, being and think of that as this is the road to salvation, this is the road to power, this is the road to pleasure, whatever we're looking for at the time. And what we should be aware of is there are several things going on. And whatever we're paying attention to here means there's something else that we're neglecting over there. And so, therefore, I took the eight principal parts of the soul and said, hey, let's let's consider these in a group of contrasting pairs and consider what these things might be in ourselves and work in that area to um, increase them. I'm not by any means the first person to do this, right? Almost everyone that's been uh, some kind of magical teacher in the last 200, maybe 300 years is considered this. Uh, Gurdjieff was really, really clear on this, right? You know, he says, you know, the four ways of being, the first being the fakir, working with the body. We all know people like that. You know, I have friends that spend hours in the gym every week and whose bodies have, you know, 1% total body fat and they practice yoga and they just kind of shine with health and they see this as this is the road to progress. Well, that'll work for, you know, about 90 years, but it's not going to work much further than that. Uh, or a path of devotion. Like I, you know, if I pray if I get closer to this God, I am getting better. That's great, but that's great for the God. But what's that, what's that doing for you? Or we can say, I'm going to look for the essential, eternal parts of myself. All right, very excellent. You'll get some power there, but you'll never get anything beyond that power. Or we take the road of, I'm just going to deal with what I can build up in this lifetime. My ideas are everything. Again, you can go quite some ways with that, but it's really limited. 
So I suggested using a soul craft that takes on a variety of different approaches and take you through these approaches. So it created a basic sense of orienting you inside you uh, that you become aware of parts of yourself that you may or may not be aware of. Uh, and, and, and a very common part, the Egyptian idea of the Rin, the name, we don't think about that very much. Your name not only expresses who you are, that's not just that encapsulated thing stuck that you fill out a form with, but your greater reputation is also something that affects you. Yeah, I would perhaps think if it affects you. I would perhaps argue that people think about this all the time. If you think about social media and Twitter and canceling and reputation building and mm. likes and all of that, it seems to be the primary, not just concern of, you know, let's just say for America, it seems to be not not just the primary concern of quite a lot of America, but it seems to be their job. It seems to be the underpinning of the American economy in some ways. It's just people producing social capital. Oh, well, actually, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll consider you're probably right about that. I mean, the uh, there's a great change that came through the entire consciousness of the world with the coming of social media. And, and we have no idea really what that is yet. Right, but we do have this really startling moment that before social media came along, it never occurred to anybody that someone is thinking about us. Now we think someone's thinking about us all the time. <laughs> I mean, some people are so worried about what's going on, they, they put forth pictures of what they ate. Yes, they people want to know what I had for lunch, or they're going to no be no one wants to know what you had for lunch. You won't want to know what you had right. for lunch tomorrow. I think Heidegger, I uh, Heidegger. I can't remember the German word, but in one of his books, he has a German word that just represents them that are constant, like the man in the street who is constantly watching and the, the imagined God form of the common opinion that always has its eye on you, even though it's completely fictional that we constantly feel that we are watched by this. Well, a lot of things, you know, I mean, social media took that to an extreme, the coming of modernist fiction, uh, no doubt really changed that mm. because before modernist fiction you tended to view people as part of this heroic mold even if the character was not a hero in the sense of uh, a godlike figure it's a figure that you would see the big movement of their lives and their life had an arc and the modernist fiction uh confronted us with the fact that a lot of our lives don't have an arc you may be the most profound, beautiful, wonderful thinker at noon, uh, just after you gave your lecture at the university, but you're the same person uh, at midnight, uh, you know, being sick into your toilet, Yeah. you know, and, and being absolutely thinking you're going to die in the next minute. And that's within 12 hours of each other. Who, who are you? What is the constant between those two poles? Yeah, so I, I feel that, yeah, we've talked about modern fiction on the podcast a lot. We talked about James Joyce and Ulysses and the internal narrative stream kind of revealing the inner world of the human around the same time as psychotherapy became very popular. And then if I'm thinking back on this concept of what you say about social media, I thought a lot about, I feel that the real antecedents of, of uh, or excuse me, precedents for social media were like talk show culture in the 80s and America's Funniest Home Videos. 
It's like literally it's like and, and then it's if you really think about that, it's like the political system that rules us is not, you know, one of the systems better defined and studied by political scientists or or fascism or democracy or anything like this. It's America's funniest home videos. They were constantly caught in this loop of looking at each other's home videos forever and therefore oh, distracted no, from any like, productive you're, you're activity. Quite correct. That's a profound moment. But just suddenly the average person was had two thoughts, one of which was, I can produce something of value. I can have something that everybody's going to laugh at, and that's the value. Uh, and then two, it's also when I am the least controlled and least competent as a human mm. being. Those are weird. That's a very strange thought. That is weird. Like, I'm going to be known for my great moment of human nobility, but I'm going to be known for you know slipping on a banana peel. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I watched a uh, interview once with the guy that did America's Funniest Home Videos, uh, and it's, this was on the internet for a while, but I haven't haven't found it in years. So I guess someone you know tracked it down and killed it. Where I, I can't think of the name of the rather unfortunate person that brought that to us, but he's just as drunk as he can be, and he's talking about the video that has the squirrel skiing. You may think back to the film with the with the squirrel water skiing in it. Vaguely. And admitted that in the actual original video, uh, which was apparently just a few seconds longer, the skis went different directions and it split the squirrel into it. Oh, Lord, Lord. And he's just see. laughing, you know, just, <laughs> just, just maniacally. No. Um, Jesus. And it was interesting Why? because, it, you know, yeah, it's all, in, it's all in the editing. That's really uh, disturbing. I think that one way, there is a path. Um, someone will invent a spiritual path someday of being a video producer. Interesting. Well, you have the power to manipulate and change and frame reality for sure. Uh, it's hard. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. Also, if you look at that just from a situationist perspective, it's like it, it, it's almost like it draws people more and more into the system because now you're tasked not just with being a consumer of the spectacle, but a producer of the spectacle and like a sharing the conspiratorial guilt of the spectacle. Yeah. The, the path, I guess, of becoming aware of Maya is to make Maya. Hmm. To actually see how uh, your own actions become um, distorted or edited or used for purposes, not, not what you really want to be used for. So how do you feel about or this in you, general? You know, is this, a, is this a social media and all this from a magical perspective? Do you see this as a positive or negative or more? Um, what what angle do you see this from? What angles, I should say? I think that by and large, the evolution of consciousness on this planet, the way consciousness itself has changed form, is not based on um, some of the outward things going on like writing or social media or um, fire even, but it arises from people within whatever's going on that are the better people, that are the, the true elect at a given age. And sadly, that cannot be owned by a particular religion or path or people. Uh, in fact, that's, that's the downfall, right? Because one spiritual movement starts getting really good people and like, ah, oh, this is it. Let's, let's all jump on that bandwagon. No, 
you know, these things have seasons. Um, social media presents far too many distractions for the distracted person. But for the focused person, it produces thousands of doorways and maybe they can find the right doorway. Yeah. I had- it takes all the problems of life and kicks it up a couple more uh, notches on the knob. Yeah, it also it also adds an additional burden to your life of now you have to document as well as living your life, which is just too much for most people. And I think um, unless you're that type of person and having lived in L.A. for 11 years, I would suggest not becoming that type of person to anyone listening. It's not a good thing. But um, I did have Stephen Flowers on this podcast a few years ago, and we were talking about we were kind of mutually somewhat reminiscing about the occult world in the nineties when it was still possible to meet a group of people who were like knew all this stuff that like you'd never heard of. And there was like this unbelievable subterranean world where like there was all this stuff that just was, was truly, I mean, it was just stuff published by small presses or people were talking about ideas or these days actually just people who are literate and read books, which is its own Gnostic uh, <laughs> uh, uh, cult at this point. But um, but that I really feel kind of went away in with with social media. And of course, all the major occult groups have their social media presence. And, you know, you can see everyone hanging out on Facebook. And, and one thing that I noticed as well is, you know, a lot of the people that back in the eighties or nineties seemed like these fearsome individuals that would be these, you know, you read these books and you're like, who are these wizards in these castles throwing lightning bolts? And then, you know, now that we have Facebook, you like go to their Facebook page and it's like Infowars links and like all this, like, you know, it's, you can see, okay, well, this is just somebody that lives in a trailer park. Right. So not just, I shouldn't say, but you know, people put on errors that they can't, um, they can't maintain in the, in the, in the world of social media. Um, so that, that has been interesting, but it's a real loss too. It's, 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 I don't, I don't, I feel that it's not the same, even though that there is so much more access to information. And I do think that podcasts are the one oasis in that, in that desert, because the counter, the, the, the counter, part of this is that it's allowed for this, which is long form hours long conversation, which people did not have before, um, as much, but I, I do believe it's, I, I really do feel that social media is the current purest expression of the Aeon of Horus or the Aeon of Karanzon maybe. And I, I think oh, no, absolutely. social media is, is the, uh, the form, the, the body of Horace these days. Uh, he is actually very powerful in that sense. Uh, because, you know, in the in the cosmology of the temple was set, you know, we, we, we have the two gods. You know, we have Horus, who's the god of mankind, this entire social uh, matrix you live in. And then we have Set, who is the isolator. Uh, and the, the absolute original form of the word Set, you know, Egyptian Sutach, meant the stabilizer. Now, that's a confusing mm. name for the god of chaos. What is the name of the god of chaos? Stabilizer. The hell, right? They're like, were Egyptians confused? But of course, once you deal with that paradox a while, you realize the way you deal with chaos is to become stable, to become the one constant in an uh, equation full of variables. 
this is the way as far as you know we're concerned. Uh, and Horus is always about interconnection. Now, what social media has done is it has removed the benefits of the uh, doctrine of effort. Let's say that you know you were wanting to become a magician, and you discovered that somewhere miles away, maybe in, in another country, in a far valley, there is this person that teaches, and you you, you sell everything you have to make this long trek there. And you knock on their door and wait outside their home for days before they take you in. You're going to receive revelation. Whether or not even that person has revelation, that's not the point. What you went through was the point. Yes. Now, if you want access to somebody, you can spend uh, 10, 15 minutes searching on the internet if they're obscure. And you can get, you can discover them. Start a dialogue with them. Know about them immediately. Uh, so in that sense, effort is gone. So we have to find a different place to make effort, and it has to now become a completely interior one. We have to study your own life and say, like, what's yeah. the effort I need to make? Well, for me, I think that there, there's obviously great things about that. I mean, just the, the ability to have access to all of this occult information when that was impossible even a few decades ago is even if you were in university in, in the university library system, perhaps uh, it would have been very hard and time consuming uh, is profound. And, and so the difficulty now, I think, it, I think it's in many ways, more effort needs to be exerted, but the effort now is not discovering the information or questing for the information. It's collating the information under sifting the positive or the useful from the unuseful and, and something that is even harder, which is exerting discipline over yourself to actually practice it. Because what happens is people just get, they get into spiritual materialism, they get heaps and heaps and heaps of all this easily accessible occult information, whether it's books or PDFs or courses or, or, or whatever, but it's just, then they never practice any of it. So that's, I think, the initiatory hurdle that has to be overcome. I mean, you have to force yourself to actually do it and not just do it, but practice it over a long extended period of time. And that's actually quite hard to do without a teacher or an, or a, an, initi an initiatory group, as I have discovered in my life, having been in them and out of them and having had teachers and then not have had teachers, uh, no matter how, um, whatever the potential pitfalls of, of a group like that might be, it's much harder to do that without somebody reminding you to do it. It's, it's much harder to do it on your own. So I think that's the, the, the effort that is called for. There's a Sanskrit parable that fits this. And it says that there are three paths of knowledge. The first path is the path you were just referring to, and that's the path of the monkey. The monkey is on a tree, and it runs over, and it eats a fruit, and it's really happy. Then it sees a fruit over there, and it goes yep. to that fruit, and it gets another fruit, jumps around to another tree, finds another fruit. It makes no progress, but it has several sweet moments of eating the fruit. This is the average person in the occult world. They will come across some idea, and they're thrilled with the idea. And it's fun to read about. Man, it's great. You open up one of Stephen Flowers' books in the room. It's like, oh, this is excellent. Wow. You don't really do anything. But as you read about it, you have this, this fantasy of doing it. Then there's the path of the eagle. 
this is a very rare path. I have never known anyone to pursue this path and, and, and succeed, which is I am starting at the low point on the tree and I'm going to fly without resting all the way to the top of the tree. It takes tremendous sense of will and it takes a tremendous initiatory vision at the beginning. There are famous people who have done this in history. It's not something you see, nothing I've ever, ever seen in this life. And then you have the third path, the path of the mounted master, the man on a horse, the horse being the body, being the circumstances of life, who progresses constantly upward, but accepts the fact that progress is slow and sometimes yeah. difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like in order to do everything in one shot, you basically would have to be cloistered in some type of monastic um, facility where other people are kind of looking after your basic needs. I, I can't really imagine any other way to, to do it that, that linearly. That would be my assumption. Let's, um, I want to circle back though. I want to talk about set. Set is fascinating to me. I like set quite a bit. Um, I think that the, one of the points I was going to touch upon with the Aeon of Horus things is I, I think I get this thing sometimes from magicians who are very experienced, who've been <clears throat> have 30, 40 years of experience. I mean, you often get people like, like getting really sick of Aeon of Horus. I mean, like Dave Lee, the chaos magician has written about this. It's just like, ah, oh God, like the endless Aeon of the, of the restless child. It's just like, please like just stop with your constant babbling and, and the, the constant America's funniest home videos, nature of reality. Um, and set <clears throat> is provides, I wouldn't just say a refreshing <sighs> set to me does represent the inner the inner initiatory current of the Aeon. And I do think it is a stabilizing perspective. It's, it can be a quite frightening perspective at some times, but certainly one worthy of respect. And it is, I feel, I think that perspective of the temple of set on set is, um, has always been very refreshing to me having read the material and interacted with Setians in my life. So, um, Talk about that a little bit. Talk about perhaps set as the path of set as an initiatory path. I know there's a lot in there to talk about, but the idea of isolate intoxication or the isolate in individual, I mean, we get from not just the common new age movement, but even Crowley and, and apparently left-hand path people were constantly the idea of dissolving the self in devotion to something higher and the constant admonitions to not isolate your individuality. And so the, the, the perspective that actually maybe you should do that is still, I think, a, a challenging one. So maybe if you'd like to talk about that a little bit. The, uh, the, the moment uh, that, that Sedian sum up with the Egyptian verb kefir to come into being is a moment that all humans have. It's not, you know, not something we own in any way. Uh, all of us have had the experience. Well, all of us that are um, alert enough to, to tune into this podcast have had this experience where you take an idea that you understand intellectually. I've got this whole idea of justice now. I understand this. Uh, and then some experience that you're involved in, suddenly it floods over your body and you understand justice. 
Now, if you put it in words 15 seconds before you understood it, or put it in words 15 seconds afterward, it's the same words. Looks exactly the same to an outside source, but we have that experience of really getting it. In other words, it's become part of your inventory at a deep and spiritual level. And you can do this with any concept, uh, art, justice, magic. And then eventually, and the most important one is who you are, who yourself is. You have to wait until that's created in yourself. Now, in the Aeon of Horus, in the work that uh, Crowley did, Crowley had a tremendous and powerful revelation. And it was not when he got the book of the law. It came uh, about five years later. He realized that you have to initially transcend social conditioning. Social conditioning is there to make you a good herd animal. And, and that's a good thing. We want, to, we want to be a good herd animal. I want to be a good herd animal when I'm out driving in the streets. And if I see a red, red light, I stop like all herd animals because I don't want to hit somebody. Hmm. That's a good thing. Uh, but I don't want to be a herd animal and everything. Crowley's big breakthrough was that getting rid of social conditioning does not have to be through suffering. It could also be through pleasure. And one of Crowley's biggest initiatory moments, the moment when he realized he was a master of the temple, he was being sodomized. And so he had this moment of, hey, this yeah. is it. <laughs> now, this is not the path for everyone. You're not, if you're listening to this podcast, I am not telling you to go get sodomized. <laughs> um, it could be any pleasure. It could be having a, you know, a big spaghetti dinner with your family. But it's that moment of, you realize your true self just as well through pleasure that you do through pain. And as you begin to add to that self and make that self come into being, it is a true and real guide. Uh, that's just a very difficult thing for humans to start with because we're so capable of error. Even after we become enlightened, we're capable of error. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I, I agree. I think the vision in the voice is Crowley's best, best moment. And, and that moment in the 15, 15, I think it was the 15th either. Um, there was another layer to that too, where it wasn't just because he had been an active bisexual and homosexual for, for quite a while. The thing that was taboo breaking for him was being the bottom. <laughs> that yeah. that was a big deal for him because he, he had to surrender control. And, and perhaps admit to himself that, uh, actually, you know, maybe he, he was gay <laughs> instead of like oh, being able no, to dwell no, in a it, macho it's fantasy. A concept we don't have now, but in Edwardian times, the idea was as long as you were yeah. uh, the, the active figure, yeah. you were manly. It's, it's, it's still true in, 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 in today, but you'll do Come yeah, here, boy. it's still true yeah. in some Hispanic cultures. So yeah. And, and other cultures for sure. So, so that was the big one for him. But I think just that idea, um, whatever it is, for me, the, the core idea of the Aeon of Horus, that suffering is not necessary for initiation, for me, that's a huge, that's a huge idea. And I don't think that that has, people have fully got to grips with it. I think that uh, despite the controversy around him, you may know that Daniel Gunther wrote that book, Initiation in the Aeon of Horus, which I thought was actually really good and kind of brings that out. Um, 
I, it's not an endorsement of anything else going on in that end of the world, but I thought it was a good book, but, um, the, that's a really hard thing. I mean, just in day-to-day life to just to accept enjoyment and that life can be nice and does not have to be a consistent sequence of self-crucifixions and letting everyone know that you're doing this. That's tough, surprisingly. And, and that says a lot just to realize that. <coughs> we have a, uh, <clears throat> the idea of suffering is a really useful social control idea because it makes people accept their lives in a way that they don't need to accept from. Uh, it's one thing to say, no, that's just what's going on now. You'll be stoic, right? Which is very, a very good mind hack, stoicism. Um, and probably a better mind hack than Christianity, which is my suffering is, is an offering to God. Well, mm-hmm. why did God make you for that? Yes. You know, that, was kind of, that was like a bad design choice on God's part. Uh, the idea that initiation can be anything <clears throat> works if you assume your whole life is anything. That's just a matter of being being awake, right? And then that uh, probably probably Gurdjieff um, said that the best when he wasn't uh, fucking around. Um, but all masters tend to be they fuck around because they're experimenting with their their pupils, and that's 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 their forbidden truth, right? If you're around a guru, the guru is running experiments on you. Mm-hmm. You, you had better hope it's a good guru and they don't have a really horrible experiments left to run than bad gurus who have to do everything on you. Yeah, Trungpa is a great example of that in terms of extreme social experimentation. Yeah, I mean, when you look, when you look for a school, and I think schools are necessary for at least part of your development. I agree. Don't look at the leader. Who gives a fuck about the leader? Look <laughs> at the graduates of the school. Yes. Did they get better? Are they yeah. happy? Are they successful being whatever they are? Are they people that That's you would want to be? For. I think is is what I always what I always think of. It's like you know, it's like the people who are, and that's not even just a, a magical school. That could be like a, re, a religious group or so whatever. Um, even a job, I, I assume it's like you know, are the people who are the graduate the people who have graduated this and actually applied this to their life to the extent that it is possible to do so. Do you would you like to be those people? And usually mm-hmm. the answer is no, for me. Sometimes yeah, it's not. Yeah. yeah, don't get in the front of the assembly line if you don't like what's coming off on the other end. Yeah, that's no. that better put. Yeah, for sure. So, and so, what is the perspective? What is the Setian perspective on what you're talking about with this kind of Aeon of Horus insight of Crowley's or, or current of the Aeon? Well, I, I think Crowley's uh, downfall is he seeks something that is outside the mechanistic universe. He wants to have something that's not based on the cause and effect world which is what initiation is. He's right about that. But then he assumes the path to that must entirely be inside the mechanistic world, particularly in the form of um, drugs, right? And so that actually does not take you to enlightenment. That may give you some useful states along the way, but you don't need very much of that at all. Um, I think you probably needed more of that in Victorian Edwardian times than you do now. Uh, I mean, Crowley was a classically trained scholar 
and mountaineer and, and chess master. Yeah, he needed something to get outside himself. Most Americans don't need something to get outside of themselves. They're already way too loose. <laughs> you know, their psyche yes. is just, just open, you know. Yeah, I think that I that yeah, I agree with you. That's another thing I appreciate about the Setian perspective. And I think that or even just Crowley, I mean, like one of the things I, I tell this to people too, it's like one of the biggest things you can get from Crowley is not even magic. It's the benefit of you know, an education as it was at that time in history, where you go through that reading list and you you are exposed to that level of rigor of of study. And it's currently not the best or the, the peak of all possible, but it's a whole lot better than the American school system. And I think that the most one one of the most important things you can get from magical practice is just discipline. And there there was an essay online by there's somebody in the Thelemic kind of broader thalamic role named Keith 18, Keith 418, excuse me, who has a, his blog may or may not still be up, but he wrote an essay quite a while ago that I, I, it's one of those things you can't unsee. And I think it was re really brilliant. And he said that what is actually going on, he basically did a Marxist analysis of secret societies. And he said that what's actually going on in initiatory groups is that people in the middle class are training people in the lower class to enter the middle class by doing things like learning, teaching them how to write, teaching them how to read, teaching them how to show up at meetings on time, teaching them how to formulate um, a goal in life and, and so on, teaching them how to interact with other people in kind of like a pseudo um, corporate environment. And I think that that is uh, probably true. And of course, he coupled this with the the bitter insight or, or not insight, but the bitter proclamation that for most people, it just wasn't going to happen, that they were not going to be able to transcend their class. And I'm not sure I agree with him on that. But in some cases, unfortunately, it is true. I think that that was probably too, he took it, that's probably too cynical. But the reason that I bring this up is you mentioned Americans being too loose. I think that the to articulate a self and stick to it in the same way that you're, you're talking about people get knocked off the path all the time. That is really, really hard. And it gets harder all the time because the distractions get better and better all the time. And, um, it, that for me is much harder and has been much more fruitful in my life and is much whether that makes me left-handed or not, it's just like that, that for me is the way to go rather than this idea that, oh, you're going to do 10,000 mushrooms and dissolve yourself into the great mother. You know, it's like, well, good, you know, good, good, good luck with that, but you still got to get a job when you're on the other side of that. One of the, the problems, uh, and particularly for this current generation of magicians, uh, is that the, the grandfather of chaos magic, Austin Spare, yeah. uh, undoubtedly a magician of great power, yeah. didn't develop anything else in his life to stabilize his life. He was a, a, a pass-out drunk that lived in tremendous poverty for years and would be ripped off by his artistic clients for, for the last few decades of his life. Um, and is that necessarily then the magic system you want to just thoroughly throw yourself at uh the path of ecstasy or nothing is a bad path you may be on it for a few weeks or a few months but you can't be on it for a few years without it just wrecking you in some way 
um, Ralph Tegmeyer. Yeah. Ralph Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ralph points out that the best magicians he's trained are never trust fund babies who can give all their time to magic. And, and this is true because I've had a couple of these students myself. It's people that have uh, you know, a 40, 15 hour week job yeah. and are taking care of a household and a family and have a tough schedule. I, mean, I agree with that. For magic. I agree with them. These guys make huge progress. Crowley had that experience as well with, I think, one of his students, his best student at Sheffaloo was Frank Bennett or something like that, who was a, a bricklayer, although Tobias Churton told me that that is probably Crowley playing up his lower, his blue collar credentials too much. But, you know, he was a working guy. And I think that's true. And it's, I think it's true of anything, though. If you're learning something and you have skin in the game, it's not just an idle distraction for you. It's like, if you're learning magic because you need it to work, you're going to be a lot better than someone who's just playing a parlor game. Well, for, for centuries, at least the last 300 years in particular, uh, Freemasonry has had this effect in the Western world, right? Where small amounts of the Gnosis are given to people who are active members of society of good character. Mm-hmm. That's a really powerful formula. It is, yeah. Well, I know you will get up and get things done because you do that every day to go to work. All of your friends report well of you. You don't beat your wife. You uh, are decent to your employees or to your boss. We're going to give you a little bit of free We're going to give you a little dose of the Gnosis and brotherhood with similar similar brothers. That's a powerful formula. It is. I think that's uh, it's maybe a used formula because it becomes gender and race specific, but it's a good formula to start with. Yeah, I think that's it's you can clearly point to at least in America, Freemasonry in America is possibly <coughs> the most successful hermetic uh, expression, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's certainly the most stable and the, the longest lasting, although it may not survive this generation, unfortunately. Um, I am a Freemason. I've watched it dwindle in the, sh- you know, I've been a Freemason since 2008. And um, it's, it's a weird one because, uh, you know, it's a primarily greatest generation organization. Those people, those who are still here are not going to be here that much longer. The baby boomers did not join at all. But then millennials, tons of millennials joined looking for Gnosis. And I think becoming frustrated when they only got the tiny amount that you're talking about and lost interest. So hopefully I, I, I think that joining Freemasonry for those who, who have the inclination is, is always, um, something that I, I, you know, I certainly don't have anything bad to say about it. I think that it's a very maturing experience, particularly for wayward young men, but of good character, but, but yeah, um, I feel like we got off track a little bit. I want to keep coming back to set. One thing okay. that uh, one, one thing that I'm not clear on actually is where where does the temple of set fall generally on the nature of the self in the sense of are you essentialists or more Buddhist about it in terms of is there a core self or soul or not? Uh, we're essentialists. We believe there is a core soul. Uh, in the same sense that acorns exist, right? If I walk out in my yard, because I live in you know Austin, like you do, and I have live oaks in my front yard, uh, if I'm barefoot, I can find a lot of acorns. Yeah. Tons of acorns out there. Yep. Thousands, sometimes millions of acorns when I'm cleaning up the damn yard. Uh, but they're not trees. 
and most of them will never become trees, and they will sit there and they will rot mm. and be eaten by the big tree. Souls exist, and you have certain innate properties, and you should certainly in your unfolding discover those properties, but the main job is the unfolding. The main job is putting that acorn in a place where the soil has been prepared and the rocks removed and it can get sunlight and water and all the things it needs in its season. So everyone probably starts out with this. And I don't know, you know, I mean, certainly different settings would disagree with this. I mean, this is not doctrinal in any way. I think not everyone is called to the spiritual life or needs to be. Uh, and some people need just enough spiritual life to help them do things like marry well, get a job they don't hate, uh, learn to appreciate art and the soul a little bit, and maybe do a little magic. Yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. But there are some people who have stronger needs than that. If that's born in them, I don't know. I don't know if that is grace, if that's some force of some form, some force beyond them, or if that's an internal property or I suspect maybe something of both. Yeah. You know them when you see them, for sure. Yeah. Um, what is what is the left-hand path for you and your new book, which I suppose it doesn't seem like a left-hand path book to me, but uh, is it relevant for people of any school? I try to make it relevant for people of any school. Um, the left-hand path usually uh, is the path of non-union. The left, those in the left-hand path do not desire to be dissolved into a greater form. Uh, often the left-hand path is known for its antinomian practices. Um, sexuality, uh, polluted substance, acceptance of negative emotional states, uh, more so than uh, right-hand path brethren. But magic is itself its own discipline. And so I wanted to write something for everyone that practiced magic, because I think there's a lot of things in the world that have some overlays that don't need to be there. And a lot of those overlays come from uh, teachers from the last century, whether it's Franz Barden or Aleister Crowley, usually. Uh, certainly from Golden Dawn and uh, Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor offshoots. And I tried to say, all right, here are some things you can do and mainly with the questions, because I was an exercise. I go do this, and then I gave some pretty open-ended questions. There aren't right answers to those questions. You know, if you decide today, I'm just going to read the questions on each section, I'm ready. No. And your answers will be different than other people. I want people to discover that they can uh, have results that are beyond the mechanistic world, beyond the normal probability of the world. And that they can make decisions with their hearts and minds about those things. Uh, magic is akin to the Sidian ideal of self-creation, of Kepler, uh, because magicians are creating themselves. They are making parts of themselves stable and clear and definable in a world that is not stable, not clear, and often without external definition probably more so for us than for a traditional society, because there is no traditional society that modern Americans or Canadians or Frenchmen or whatever are growing up in. 
Uh, there's a deeply pluralistic society with all the huge benefits and huge problems that come with that. Interesting. So if you're saying that you, you mentioned earlier that one of the issue, your issues with Crowley is that he assumed there was something outside of the mechanistic universe, but that the, uh, me the mechanism to get there was within it. And yet you're saying that you have, you're proposing methods for how to do that. Where, what is the difference and what are you, what are you proposing? The way you find your way out of the, the cave, where you find way out of the mechanistic universe is unique to everyone. Everyone has their own door. And when you have that moment of revelation, that moment of there is something deeper than just the world I live in, that for you is your door. You have to enlarge that opening. And that's something you created. That wasn't something that was given to you uh, by a drug or by a school or by saying a certain mantra. It may have occurred to you in the process in, in, in any of these things. Any of these things may be the moment of, of revelation. Uh, one of the most important moments of revelation in my own life, long before I began what I would call a spiritual practice, <clears throat> involved lug nuts. And lug nuts are what changed my life. And I will tell you that story. Uh, I was living in Lubbock, Texas. And a friend of mine knocked on my door. Not a friend, an acquaintance. Remember this? Sorry, an acquaintance knocked on my door and said, hey, I just bought a car in Oklahoma City. I'm going to drive over and get it. You want to come with me? And I didn't really have anything to do the next day. And well, why not? So I said, yeah, sure. Got, went and got in the car with him. This is pre-cell phone. Cell phones have removed certain aspects of uh, life. And I'm driving along with this guy. And we're going to drive into the night. We're going to hit Oklahoma City about dawn. So we're zipping through, you know, the, the darkness of Oklahoma, three in the morning. <laughs> and this guy looks over at me and says, you know, you may not believe this, but my car only has eight lug nuts. And I said, what? He says, yeah, you know, over the years when I've changed my flats, I've lost eight, eight lug nuts. I just got two lug nuts on every, every wheel. <laughs> and I suddenly realized I'm going to fucking die in the middle of Oklahoma at three in the morning with an idiot that's not close to me as a friend. And my parents and my girlfriend don't know where I am. I am going to die here. I am going to die because I did this incredibly stupid thing. This is now the most important moment in my life. This was the life-defining situation. <laughs> and about that time, this car began to overheat, and you know, and then smoke is coming out. So we pull into a, a truck stop. I get out of the damn car while he goes in to eat, and I go and take one leg off each of four vehicles and put it on his tires. <laughs> And it was that moment I had the actual realization of, I am really alive. I have to be responsible for my life. Yeah. And there are forces in my life that are bigger than me, and I'm making agreements with them all the damn time. Now, I did not go on to find it, found a church of lug nuts. <laughs> I did not go on to found a religion based on your relationship to the lug nut. But that was a moment for me. That did not come from the mechanistic universe. Oh, sure, the problem was there from the mechanistic universe, which was none of his wheels were stable and neither was the guy driving. Mm. But it came from the realization of I am totally 
absolutely 100% asleep. And I slept walk into this dangerous place. And it's no, you know, it's just as dangerous as being in the middle of a battlefield with people shooting at me. And it never occurred to me that's where I was. Huh. Isn't there's a Kelp? So then shortly thereafter, um, I had sort of dabbled in the occult. I went back to it and said, hey, what's the real mechanism behind this? Is it a God outside myself? Is it me? Is it some combination? Is, is there an answer? And does someone have the answer? Isn't there a Celtic God named Lug? Mm-hmm. Lug, yeah. <laughs> he's, a God that's, he's a God that's second best at everything, which is kind of a wonderful title as a God. That, yeah, that's that no one would expect suspect you. That's great. Um, yeah, that's a great story. It makes me think of like the 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 act of being in this insane reality, but like, it seems to me like the act of stealing lug nuts off of other cars and putting them on this guy's cars is like the hack or the breaking the rules that represents magic, perhaps. Oh, because what I was doing in, in any sense of the world would be illegal. And even if I'd gone in and asked someone, may I have one of your lug nuts? They're not going to give that to some, you know, guy they're meeting at three in the morning. Right. Um, you know, so I'm having to have stealth and I'm having to use skills and, and I had to do it. And, and so, it was a very wonderful life changing moment. And so you relate this to the left hand path in some way. Well, yeah, because it involved uh, breaking social norms, right? I'm like, I'm literally stealing things. I'm literally doing something I could go to jail for. Uh, I am doing it on my own. No one told me to do it. My guru did not appear to me and say, go forth and take the lug nut. The force is with you. Uh, it's required. I had to be thoughtful. I mean, I could have taken four lug nuts from one guy, right? Um, but like, I did not want to endanger other people. And, and not all lug nuts are the same size. I didn't know that either. Like, nope, that's, that one didn't fit my leg wrench. So involved rapidly learning something, rapidly making a decision, transgressing social norms, and change in an instant. Motion initiatory change occurs in a lightning flash moment, but you've been preparing for it for months and years. That's so you can recognize it. What would another example be? Uh, I'll give you the counterexample. Okay. I got one really good counterexample. Uh, I have a friend who is a tremendous scholar of Germanic myth and has a variety of, of books on, on, on the topic. His wife, who is not interested in Germanic myth, was in, their, in her office one day and was looking at his titles and said to him, what is Thor? And the moment she said that, Perfect synchronicity. It was a huge lightning bolt outside, <laughs> close to where they live. Boom! <laughs> and my friend made a gesture. And she looked at him like, What? No, I asked you a question. What? Now, for him, because of years of practice, that was a deeply meaningful moment for her. That was not a deeply meaningful moment. Interesting. And for everybody in their community, I'm sure no one had that moment of, oh, yes, Thor is manifest. 
he must have thought he was really on that day, though. I, I, I'd be very, I'd be very impressed with myself if that happened. <laughs> well, see, the that, gods that are with me. Yeah, is it is it me, <laughs> or is it the gods? And true moments of magic transcend that that notion. Yeah, because we have small. We think we have strong boundaries between self and not self, but we don't. Of and and of course, I would say similar counter to that, or similar to that. Uh, in my life, often, you know, you can be dwelling on the problem forever, meaning being a scholar of myth or magic or things like this and just obsessing over details. And then somebody with no background in it can just like show up and make an observation about what you're doing that is like the answer that completely eluded you the entire time because you were too close to see it, but it's obvious to, to perhaps to other people. Um, so... That I think is pretty funny too. Even even the uh, perhaps the transmission of the Book of the Law with Rose Kelly is a similar scenario in some ways, where it's somebody who is supposedly quote unquote uh, normal that actually provides the answer. Well, the the, the Book of the Law has is particularly interesting that after he transcribed this, he took it home and he lost the manuscript for a year. You know, he didn't take it home and I'm going to study this now. This is the, the moment. And now this, of course, may be a, a lie because it's Crowley telling his story. And Crowley was probably not a servant of the truth, whatever he was a servant of. But according to him, he was getting ready to go skiing and found it and then realized its worth upon rereading it a year later. Yeah, the, the funny thing about that story is I believe it was it was he said it was in his attic underneath his skis and the Enochian tablets. But whether or not that was true, it literally was rediscovered, I think, in the 90s in somebody else's attic in Oakland or San Francisco. And then this person just happened. It was just came with the house. And this person just happened to know somebody in the in the uh, in the auto, in the OTO. So it, it ended up back with in the hands of the OTO that way. So, again, in the no, attic. That's not the true story. Oh, and I'll carry on. Yeah. You probably have noticed since you've lived in Austin, down in the middle of um, the city, there's the University of Texas in yeah, Austin. Yeah. No doubt you've seen this. Um, and a guy named Sid Richardson, very wealthy, wealthy oil man, came to his alma mater, University of Texas, and says, I want you to have the world's best collection of something. And I'll give you millions of dollars, but it has to be the best collection. Wow. So... The University of Texas says, what the hell can we get the best collection of? It can't be medieval manuscripts. It's too late. Wait, universities sell collections? Universities sell collections to private individuals? Yeah. I did not know that. That seems And so the, the, um, he gave millions UT, and they said, we're going to make the best collection of modernists. And so this money went out, right? And they started buying stuff. And they had put this thing out saying we want to buy anything with Joyce and Yates and so forth. About that time, a museum, a storehouse, a warehouse in Detroit said, hey, we just found this big box full of early uh, Yates books and manuscripts and they're signed and we'll sell them to you. And I said, yeah, sure, we'll buy them here, take this large amount of money. And they said, there's some other stuff in here too. It's like handwritten journals, whatever it is, just send it to us. 
So they sent it down to the HRC, which is where the book of the law is. If you want to go read it, you can. Oh, I didn't really. I've been meaning to get down there forever. I didn't realize they had the. Okay, well. They got that, the original. That's my next, uh, next now, uh, stop. Before they'll show it to you, they'll call the OTO. So if you've pissed off the OTO in any way, don't do it. I don't think so. Really? Oh, they own it now? They own it. They have to check whether the they have to clear it with the OTO. They have some legal arrangement because the OTO said, hey, wait a minute. That's our scripture. Give it back to us. And UT said, hey, we bought it fair and square and we can preserve the manuscript for everybody. And have you done this? Have you gone? Have you have you gone to you have friends come to stay with me that have studied the original? Interesting. Um, A couple of people who at the time were high ranking initiates in the OTO. And in fact, they were such good OTO scholars. They were thrown out. You may do your own (laughs) math on that one. Uh huh. Um, and so this was given to the guy that was doing their science fiction collection, Willie Cyrus. Great man, Willie. Loved Willie to death. And Willie uh, was, you know, just, and he came across this thing and he read it and he realized, you know, because he read it who Crowley was, he realized what the fuck it was. Which, of course, is in itself a moment, right? There's something that takes care of magical manuscripts. Yes. That's interesting. That's t- like like John D's forty eight keys. Yeah, you know, yeah, saved sure. from a fire. Someone grabbed it and took it, and it wound up. You know, eventually Ashmole gets it, or the the Greek magical pyre, or any of these things. That's totally different from the story that I heard, which it must have been. I think now that I'm thinking back, it was either in a, I think it was probably in like an alt magic post from back when. Uh, you remember that news group. That okay, so that okay, different story, interesting, but but broadly the same, other than it wasn't in an attic. Well, everything develops folklore. Like you know, I I heard for years the story of uh, Crowley and Gurdjieff meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Several people had told me this story, and it's all told by Gurdjieffian. So the point of the story is Gurdjieff is the real thing, and Crowley's a proctorship. Right. The real story is Crowley went to Gurdjieff's. Um, foundation their chief wasn't there he chatted with some people went home made note in his diary this guy seems to know what he's about except he's wrong about sex and this went on that was it they no face-to-face no uh you know interactive you know story about this yeah somebody should really write the book of alistair crowley urban legends uh that would be great um you mentioned earlier, you, you did say on that note, though, whatever Crowley was in service to, it probably wasn't the truth. I'm, I want to dig in on that and what you meant by that. It sounds like there's some, you have some opinions on that. Well, Crowley wanted, of course, to be, to be a writer, wanted to be a poet. Um, made several good attempts at poetry, uh, no great attempts, I think. He knew the value of art is greater than the value of objective truth. And and all magicians come to learn this. I will tell you a story from my own initiation. Um, Several decades ago, I had a vast medical work at the Temple of Staten. We had about 50 initiates there. And the working was, was... Badly, I designed the working, so I can't, you know, I can't fault someone else for designing it this way. And I had not designed it so people could leave when their work was done. And one of the initiates, you know, said, "Hey, I got to get out of here. This is this is wearing on me too much." So I was looking around for the person who was going to make the last statement that ended the work. 
near me that room. So I'm looking, is that they move in that corner? Or is that this person? Finally found them the indoor. The next day, a very sincere, totally wonderful initiate came to me and said, you know, the most important moment in that working was when you walked up to us like this. And I understood in the depth of my heart, you were telling us all to look further. And I had a moment, oh my God, do I tell them that that's what I was looking for was the guy to ring the last bell. And I thought, no, they had a true and absolute moment because they were in the high place of high, great meaningfulness. And I had taken them there. I was the shepherd of that state that time. Art can overcome objective truth. Mm. Now, the problem is for the magician to discover which stories are art and which stories are just self-serving blather. And where do you think that line was with Crowley? I, I don't know that he knew. <laughs> Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and this is not in any way to, to, to speak against him. Who did he have to teach him any of the higher states? Who did he have to, to hand off uh, the tougher truths? Well, he had the Golden um, Dawn and Eckenstein and, and Alan Bennett and later on the OTO. Mathers. I mean, he had access to the greatest initiates of the time. Well, and, 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 and went beyond them. Yeah. I mean, that was the problem. Yeah. You know, he had he stayed in Mather's orbit. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, he yeah. Become, he could have become whatever he could have become. No, he, he became much more interesting when he went off and did Vision in the Voice in his own thing, I, I think, for a while until it just kind of kind of collapsed in on itself, in my opinion. But, but yeah. Well, there, I think the problem was, again, a lack of peers. Um, you know, if everyone is expecting you all the time to be the wise, holy man, you run out of things to say. You know, in India, we have these people that take this bow of silence when they reach a certain level of development. I think this because they're finished, you know, talking about it. Yeah. It's not like that must be nice. Like, oh, no, <laughs> he is very holy. but he's being quiet. No, he's very, he's being quiet because he's, he's, he's said everything he needs to say. Yeah. And he said it, you know, a large number of times. Yeah, I do think that's a kind of a danger of, of magic, particularly when drugs are involved, just that you lose track of what's a story and what's not. That That is a, a potential pitfall. Um, the Temple of Set, is it still active? I feel like I haven't heard much. Are you still kind of in full swing or are you just silent running? Oh, no, it's it's it's, uh, it's very active. You know, okay. uh, it's current high priest is probably smarter than I was. Um you know, it remains, uh, you know, a small active initiatory order. Uh, I changed the the dynamic uh, when I decided to start publishing stuff uh, because my predecessor, Dr. Quino, was was initially uh, of the opinion that you couldn't publish. It's like, you, know, you can't give the truth away or, you know, or in my case, sell it for really reasonable amounts of money. Um, I am of a, a different opinion that for me, for my personal practice, I have to articulate what's going on. I have to reify uh, my initiatory space. Um, there've been two really good high priests uh, since, since me. Um, and I suppose they will be active for quite some time. Uh, one of my students just uh, a couple of years ago did a really good book, Toby Chapel. 
uh, called Infernal Geometry. Yeah, I've I've met or, him briefly. Pardon? I, I've met him briefly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the, the oh wait, I'm sorry, I may be confusing him with with Vera Chapel. I may not have met him. Sorry, carry on. Uh, and I am sure among the you know even of the newest generation, we're going to see some really great stuff. Uh, I think in the temple, like I mean, the, the big saying is being a member of the temple set should be the least interesting thing on your resume. And I don't think that anyone is a member for the, the glory of being an occultist. And, and that's a big change. You know, that's I great. remember like a decades ago, that was the people saw that as this is the this is the high point of my being, as I have this secret society I can send 75 bucks a year to, uh, as opposed to this is something that's helping me find my life work. Yeah, that seems much healthier. Um one thing I want to talk about is, and I know it's maybe slightly uncomfortable, but um, were you in the temple during the Presidio scandal? And the reason that I ask this is not to dwell on it, but because something that I've talked upon, uh, talked a lot about in this podcast is how similar things are becoming to the satanic panic era in the 80s again, with people like the, the whole QAnon thing and people becoming obsessed with these topics again, which I think is quite worrying and for occult people. And if they're not aware of it, I think they should be worried about it. Um, I'm wondering if there's any insight you can offer I, from your perspective, whether you were around at that time or not, that may be relevant to what what's happening now. Actually, it was that time that brought me to the temple. Okay. Uh, as you may know, that once these accusations were made against Dr. Aquino, uh, the way he proceeded legally was about, I'm not going to say, well, okay, I will say stupid. I mean, he's dead, so he's not going to rise from the grave and get me on that one. Um, he assumed, as any probably rational human would, that all he had to do was show that he was an actual uh, daily science undergoing training in Washington in a signed book every day saying, look, during the time this supposed abuse was taking place, I was in Washington, D.C. I wasn't even in San Francisco. Huh. And here's a record where I sign a book every day. Yeah. And got his real estate and just called his real estate attorney and said, handle it. Not the correct response. So uh, drawn into controversy, he did things that he found pretty distasteful, like being on talk shows. Well, it so happened in a completely different, unrelated situation. This was two years before the uh, 300th anniversary of the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, I had received an invitation, I'm, I'm a short story writer, I've written a lot of horror stories, to write uh, a story for a collection that was gonna be about the Salem Witch Trials, about which I knew nothing. So I had accepted the invitation and gone out and got several books. And I'd been reading about the Salem Witch Trials all day. And I, I worked up a chart that showed all the states of the Salem Witch Trials from vague accusation to when they started accepting spectral evidence to uh, listening to you know these, these frantic teens and mothers to people making money off of it. Mm. That's a little chart from And I was very pleased with myself having researched this all day. So I put my chart down and turned on the TV. And the first thing I saw on the TV was this spinning baphomet that came and filled up the <laughs> whole screen. And a booming voice said, 
Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> the good old days. Satanism in America. It's so nostalgic for me. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, whatever, you know. And so I'm watching this, and 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 I'm listening to these. There's like four occult experts, and then they had Zena from the Church of Satan and Doctor Quino from yeah. the Temple of Set. That's I don't, I don't know if you've noticed that's a that is huge on YouTube, particularly with younger people who idolize Zena Levey, like like young, very young people. Zena Zena's charismatic. Um, I, I was I was a good friend of hers for some years, and then after we came to our bitter parting, uh, people love to put pictures on the internet of us standing together. Um, and anyway, I was I. They, people, the, these experts, occult experts, were, were giving their their talk, and so I picked up my chart, and I started just making notes on the side. Initially, I was thinking, "Hey, I'm just going to write a story about the current satanic panic." Uh, this is like a perfect niche. Yeah. And then at one point, there was this one uh, investor named Tom Wedge, and this guy, man, he must have weighed about 350 pounds on the roof. It's a huge man. And he was like, "I don't know." Can't even believe kind of blood these people use their rituals. Blood, 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 blood. <laughs> but I'm going after them. I have the names and addresses of every Satanist in America and their crimes. And then a very calm voice, Dr. Queen said, Well, then why don't you arrest them? <laughs> Just totally, totally def- you know, deflated this whole moment. Yes. And I literally heard. I saw, you know, Geraldo make this gesture, and I heard them turn off Aquino's mic. I heard the pop, you know, <laughs> no. I had a, you know, in a stage experience. So it's actually what I just heard, and I thought, my God, the one intelligent statement this entire night was from the Satanist with the weird eyebrows. You know, he was a gooniest looking person up there. So the next night, I went to uh, a D and D. Dungeons and Dragons, we need stuff like this. I got proof. <laughs> it it, it I definitely went to my does. Group, and I said, wow, I would give anything to know how to write that guy a fan letter. He managed to make Geraldo Rivera shut up. That has got to be supernatural power. And one person in the group gave me this look like she was gonna, gonna hit me for saying that. And I thought, oh fuck, you know, I've I've touched a nerve here. And she walked over and said, you need to let me drive you home. Okay. I have no idea where this is leading. And we get out in the car and she says, do you really want to send Dr. Aquino a letter? Well, first off, that it was Dr. Aquino and no one else had ever used that honorific, surprised me. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I'm seeing him next week at the International Conclave of the Temple Set and I could hand deliver it for you. First occultist I had ever met in my life that wasn't a few tacos short of a combination plate. Had a real job, a real house, uh, did not have radically right-wing politics, which seems to be disease in the occult. Yeah. So I went and wrote a letter and gave it to her. And the last thing I wrote in the letter was, I don't understand how you can have a group that prize individuality and yet still be a group. It seems you know, too much of an inherent contradiction. And I gave it to her. She came back in a couple of weeks and, and had the response. 
And he had a very cordial response. And he thanked me for my letter and ended with the, this ironic piece. We don't understand the individuality group thing either. Maybe you could join it and explain it to us. <laughs> that was it. That was the whole, you know, recruiting drive for me. It was going to be a little sarcastic, you know, jab back. Um, and so I, I researched everything I could find out about this group. And that wasn't very much in those days. It was mainly extraordinarily negative. So with some trepidation, I joined. And I rose through the ranks during the satanic panic. I, you know, it's a time where we would, we would not give our name to a hotel where we're having a meeting because we didn't want, you know, protesters coming in. And, and we did have one conclave where they found out where we were. And, you know, there were people outside with signs and so forth, very unpleasant. Um, no, we're getting ready for that, that again. We're, we're about to because uh, when Americans feel that there is, and this is true of anybody, I, I shouldn't say Americans, that sounds derogatory. When people feel they have a loss of control, they look for scapegoats. Yeah. And people who can do scapegoating become very powerful very quickly. I mean, you know, the ultimate example is Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. He says to a totally defeated, sad Germany, it's not your fault. It's the Jews' fault. He doesn't explain how or why or what the Jews did. Right. But I can save you. He can save us. We want to be saved. Let's make Germany great again. Uh, there are certain political groups always that, that love scapegoating. Uh, there is a weak form of human power that comes with hatred. It's much weaker than love, stronger than fear. Fear is the very bottom, then hate, then love, then wonder. Hmm. Uh, but not everyone has the capacity for wonder. Wonder is what actually sets you apart. That's what makes you the elite. Hmm. Uh, scapegoating always has power. And a lot of scapegoating going on now. Uh, and you always scapegoat the other. Uh, it can be the sexual other. It could be the ethnic other, it can be whatever. Uh, you could probably have a group rise up being against people who are left-handed, right? Because that was actually a pretty common Christian belief in the Middle Ages. Mm. Have you faced a lot of, in your time, because you've been very public for a long time, uh, writing books on Typhonian magic and things like this. Have you faced uh, pushback or, you know, interactions with fundies or or dodgy situations at all or just public public attacks well yeah but not in the sense that it was uh something i couldn't handle and have come, people coming to my house and throwing eggs or okay um things like that i uh my my favorite moment was when uh david ick you know the guy that yeah, yeah. The, the reptilian conspiracy yeah yeah david ike yeah uh, he publicly named me as a minor leader of the lizard people. <laughs> That's pretty and cool. So I wrote back a letter saying, I am not a minor, minor leader of the lizard people. I would say I'm, I'm a well, major, I'm a ma- I would say I'm a major leader of the lizard people. <laughs> Get it straight. <laughs> so, so that means that, 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 is, that presumes that you have hordes of lizards at your beck and command. Well, the, the, the problem that, that he's, he's like, a, he's a fascinating case study, right? Because mm-hmm. he uh, developed all his power by hatred toward the other and the other doesn't even exist. Yes. 
I mean, you know, at least with Hitler, Jews existed. Although he's often been accused of that being a thinly veiled anti-Semitic well, thing. Yeah, there's a great book about that called Them, where someone... Um, yeah, I've read that. Yeah, John Ronson. Yeah. Where it's like, no, he, he really does think there are lesser people. You know, it's just, it's the, you know the, the Jews are probably bad in his mind, but they're, but they're still not the lizard people. Right. Although um, the people around him, you never know, right? Well... You know, because people join these things because they're fun, right? As long as it's not uh, disturbing anything in their own life, it's a fun belief. It's like you know, being a member of a UFO club. That's fun. Yeah, Dave, it's fun to think the you know the people from Mizar Five are coming or whatever. Yeah, David Icke really did single handedly suck a lot of the fun out of the occult. I have to say, just because he made it all the same. he he turned it, turned it all into a bad trip pretty quickly for people. Um, just with his extreme fear of everything, uh, that was, un- that was unfortunate. Although some of his books are quite entertaining. I have to say he later did ayahuasca and discovered, decided that love was the answer, but I don't think that lasted very long. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, the, the, the use of, um, natural means to an unnatural state is never stable. Yeah. So. Yeah, you mentioned that it's not really an American thing, but a human thing. And I, I think I, you, you may or may not be aware. I mean, my primary magical teacher for a long time was Genesis Peoridge, uh, mm-hmm. who I studied under. And, and of course, so I got to hear, you know, at the same time, or maybe slightly, I think a few years after the Presidio scandal was the Topi scandal, where in 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 the British authorities, somebody accused you know, all of the Topi people were living in this kind of hippie house in Brighton and somebody said, oh, they have a cult there and they have a basement where they're forcing women to have babies and they're eating the babies and just like all this insane stuff. There was like no basement. They weren't even in England at the time. They were in Nepal helping refugees by running a soup kitchen and basically had to flee England. So England has their own obsessions, um, but much like America and it is a human thing, but I mean, that said, America has some pretty obvious fault lines that crack under pressure. And I think the obsession with Satanists being everywhere is one of them and has been since the Salem witch trials for whatever reason, probably because we're a country founded by fundamentalist cultists. So that the, the, the QAnon thing is, uh, is worrying. I don't, and so I was kind of curious, uh, just from your, the experience you mentioned, if there's maybe anything you can share on how to deal with that, if that becomes a bigger problem down the road. Well, the things that work the best for me, be, be honest about your beliefs and practices. And by being honest, I mean, first off, take out the thing, pick the things that are going to be most offensive to people and just put it out. So, yep. We do this, this, we do that one. Uh, and you know, talk about your goals, which is spiritual liberation. And then be situationally aware the same way you need to be all the time anyway. Yeah. You know, uh, let's say, perfect example, when I was high priest of the Temple of Set, this German um, television station sent me a letter saying, we want you to come and say that the Temple of Set has no connections to Nazi occultism. And I said, well, we have no connections to Nazi occultism. No, but we will, we will take you to Germany and we're going to film, make a film and you're going to stand at the gates of Auschwitz and say this. 
Yikes. And I was like, you actually expect me to be standing Arbat Matfrai over my, my head saying anything. And they offered not not and and boy, that that was a time when that money would have meant a lot more to me, by mm. the way. Uh, but just being situationally aware, I knew what the image would be yeah. of the temple and myself for the rest of time would be me. Yeah. Standing at Auschwitz. Speaking of video production and editing and reframing things. Don't um, don't volunteer to to be a freak in uh, media conditions that you don't control. You are correct that the podcast is a uh, oasis of uh, clear thought. I years ago in Austin, uh, there was a young lady who adopted the name of Claire Levay. I don't know what her real name was, um, and she hinted she was Levay, you know, Levay's daughter. Not in addition to Zena and Carol, you know, whatever the other one is. Um, and uh, every year at Halloween, she would would do a talk about you know the, the, the glories of occultism for the Austin American statesman. And they would have her come to her house, and it was suitably uh, kind of B movie satanic, you know. And she would battle on us. So when the satanic panic came. The police raided her house. Mm. We treated all that as man. This is really here. Yeah. Um, and some of that footage even went into one of the the TV documentaries about that. Uh, <clears throat> she played the game of thinking that's a certain degree of common sense. There is no common sense. Common sense exists when people feel in control of their lives. When people don't feel in control of their lives, they are looking for something that's causing the lack of control. You know, I've got a good job. Why aren't I making any money? Something's causing this to happen, to go wrong. I'm making more than my father did, and yet I have a much worse house. Something is wrong. And the something is usually pretty complicated and difficult to get at and requires mm-hmm. a lot of different levels of solution. Or it can be someone off in a forest dancing around a stone block and worshiping a goat. Yeah. Well, you mentioned on email talking about the magical nature of Austin, which I'm very interested in. And one thing having, you know, having, I've been in Texas for two years now, having moved here from first, uh, well, from Los Angeles and then New York before that, it is definitely you know, Christian fundamentalism is a lot more tangible and real here than on the coast for sure. And so I am, that's something that I'm kind of getting used to. I don't, maybe not in Austin as much, but certainly in, in the rest of Texas. So that's definitely something I'm kind of adjusting to. Uh, is that something well, that is, Texas has a, a very strong, um, Christian fundamentalist bent. And, and I see people yeah. in Austin who, uh, are very happy to put, you know, their pagan and proud bumper sticker on their car. And that's great. You drive about 30 miles away. Yeah. Then you're like, you know, you might as well put a bumper sticker in your car saying, uh, police, please take notice of me. Yeah. You may throw rocks. So what, how's, how, how's navigating that? I mean, I don't even leave my house, let alone Austin. So, uh, but, uh, that, that is something I've definitely become much more tangibly aware of. Whereas before living in, 
New York or LA, the idea of kind of fundamentalist America was to be honest, kind of like an abstraction for me. It's like, oh yeah, in theory that's there, but I never see it. So it's not really a problem. Well, we don't understand if you're outside that mindset and have never seen it clearly, that is also a path to ecstasy. That these people actually do have religious bliss. These things that we may have encountered through meditation or um, some spiritual practice, they can get from hours of playing and, and singing and be sure. overcome ecstatically. Sure. Ecstasy is only proof of ecstasy. It's not proof of the truth. That's a great line. So hopefully that's something that has been easy for people to navigate in Texas or maybe not so much. Well, since I grew up around that, then I pretty quick about feeling out where people are. I mean, the easiest thing is to ask people, you know, what, what they think of as an odd experience and then listen to that and why they think it's odd. People want to tell you their deepest, darkest secrets. It's dying to give me permission. Yes. So I'm curious what you were thinking about the magical nature of Austin, or we can have that conversation offline if you, if, uh, if you didn't want that on the podcast, but you, you sounded like you wanted to share something about that. Well, uh, there, there, there have been groups in Austin forever. And, and I think the, um, I think the true MAGA, this is a, uh, a Latin word, you know, it is gendered. Uh, I think the true MAGA of Austin was the sculpture Elizabeth May. Do you mean, do you mean, uh, magicians or make America great again? Just to clarify. Uh, no magician. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make America great again being MAGA is really unfortunate for, you know, the one person, the two people I would hold that title right now. Mm. Um, she was a great magician and, and she had a word. She chose the word sursum, which she even carved into the side of her building. You know, and, and she did things like fight the Ku Klux Klan off her property with, mm. a, with a gun, mm. you know, while she was making her great sculptures. That's great. And was and said to Texas, we need to create a culture here. And I will make sculptures of your great heroes, you know, of Sam, you know, Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin and so forth. And, and we should idolize the good parts of them. I mean, there's a lot of bad parts about Sam Houston, but there's some good in that man too. And I will teach art here in the center of Texas, and I will make art part of the lives of Texans. You know, and you can go and look at her sculpture, particularly her sculpture of Prometheus. It just resounds with this very magical feeling. And it's very interesting because if you read her diaries, the moment she had her spiritual awakening was in Egypt. And she was traveling, looking at the sculpture. And she went to the great temple of Amun in Luxor and saw the giant Kephra beetle outside the temple and went back and said, originally, this must have been all religion was self-creation. When she wrote this completely like study an article about the Kefir sign and then came back and she was changed. Uh, you know, of course, for a while, uh, Austin was the center of the OTO. Right. You know, before <clears throat> the caliph left here for whatever reason, uh, Austin used to be the, the, the center point. You hear it, the Scarlet Woman noises. There have been Brigifian groups here. There have been Steiner groups. You name it. They've always had a, a place in Austin. Austin, I kind of love this stuff. Do you have a sense I've of why? Some people, so some people argue it's because of the, you know, the fact there's a magnetic fault going through the city. <laughs> is that it? You know, it's like the Persinger theory, right? But uh, there is something. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly I never expected myself to be here, yet here I am, perhaps drawn by a magnetic fault. Uh, so, but that, I, I, really, I really like it here. I think it's, uh, uh, I, I really, really like it here. I'll probably be here for quite a while. Um, do you have any theories on why, it sounds like you view Austin kind of as a, as a hot spot. Do you have any theories on why that is outside of the magnetic fault? Uh, outside of, and, and I don't completely <clears throat> think that that's wrong. Um, the fact it's a small city, it's a university city. Mm -hmm. So it has a significant part of its population of people in search of new experience. Uh, has a huge thing to do with it. The fact that um, there's an absence of natural resources. So there's not one industry that dominates. Mm. <clears throat> the... Uh, a lot of the fact was that a lot of the initial settlers here came from liberal traditions in uh, Germany and what we would now call the Czech Republic. All of those things help a great deal. Yeah, the Crowley collection being here is certainly a, a dead giveaway as well. And I, I actually did not know that the Book of Law, Book of the Law is here. That's that's phenomenal. Um, so, any advice for interfacing with magical Austin as I continue to put down roots? Uh, visit the sites that are old and beautiful and interesting and just be open to it and see what will co come to you. Any ones you recommend other than the Prometheus sculpture? Uh, I like, uh, I like town. I like, uh, Ladybird Lake. I'm so old Austin. I nearly said town lake. Uh, Zilker Park is a great place to, to walk around and get lost in. Um, some of the neighborhoods in North Austin, there's just kind of a sense of, of beauty and style. Beauty always points toward mystery. I love that. And the less, uh, the less commercialized the beauty, the, the greater the pointing. You must know Daniel. And then, of course, Go ahead. Um, beauty itself with its strange history. Why not? You must Maybe know. Dr. Flowers, uh, oh, yeah. the word Gruna. While he was a student at UT. You must know Daniel Johnston. Not what not directly, but yes, I know of him. Yeah, one of the magical experiences that I had when I first got here was I had I'm hopefully going to I found the tape of it. I'm hopefully gonna be able to clean it up and put it on the podcast. I interviewed Daniel Johnston in San Francisco in two thousand two and he gave me he at the time gave me, he wrote on a tiny ripped piece of paper, his parents' address outside of Austin to send him the publication. And right after I got here and unpacked, as, as soon as I finished unpacking, for some reason that slip with his address on it was sitting in the middle of the, uh, of the house with his parents' address. So that was, uh, that was cool. Um, you're a fiction writer. And I know you wanted to talk about that. That is something that from our conversation, you were before you got into at least the uh, set, temple of set, if maybe I'm not sure which came first that or the interest in the occult for you, or if that's hard to pinpoint, but you've said things in the podcast, like, you know, you need to reify your experience and so forth. So I'm very curious about the, overlap between those two sides of yourself. That's something that a lot of the, most of the listeners of the podcast are artistic in one way or another. And, uh, I've written a bunch of fiction as well, though, although the, and I'm hoping to get back to it because the magic side just really took over everything for a while there. So 
Well, fiction is uh, a form of low-grade ritual, right? Uh, you have to discipline your mind to sit and read. You have a series of images that are given to you that you, you then relate to. Um, the biology of reading is fascinating. For example, if you're reading an account of someone running and it's well-written, your brain will actually access the very same set of nerves it would access if you were out there running. Uh, fiction is about modifying subjective states and then it produces a great change. And the best fiction takes you to a wordless place. That, that's really amazing, right? That you can be reading, say, James Joyce's The Dead, wonderful short story. Yeah. And you have this overwhelming feeling at the end and you can't put it in words because he's taken you through the same steps that his protagonist went through. And you're left in this wordless place as the snow is falling gently over all of Ireland. Uh, fiction comes from a desire to escape or modify or refocus reality. And magic comes from escape to modify, escape or refocus reality. They're the same factor the same want, and often the same materials that use words. This is as true in other art forms. I can't speak of what it is to be a musician because I'm not a good musician, uh, but my musical friends tell me that this is true for them. It is true for painters or sculptors or even great tattoo artists. The artistic impulse and the magical impulse come from the same place. Uh, the artistic impulse is probably, in some sense, more noble in that it is less concerned with worldly affairs or with self-benefit. Magic can be uh, done for worldly affairs. It can be done for self-liberation. Art is often done just for art. And so for some reasons, for some ways, art is maybe even a higher octave than magic if you use that kind of terminology. Yeah, I think you were actually even, maybe you were, this is what you were alluding to earlier, but even Crowley says that in eight lectures on yoga, where he says something to the effect of the greatest artist is, is far higher than the greatest magician. And that does seem to be, um, this is something that Kenneth Grant got a lot of traction out of the idea of the artistic trance as, as a magical revelation. So, well, I mean, Grant's uh, strength and weakness is exactly the same, which was he became aware of this liminal state between waking and sleeping or between waking and having a drug experience or whatever state A and state B is. He found, he circled the liminal state in between and he said, that's it. That's where the magic is. No, the magic can be anywhere but you can become aware of magic in those states really well. Mm. Uh, he confused entering into magic with magic. And then that led to a lot of um, confusion. That, know, that's a good kind point. Of permanently high state of seeing connections that aren't there and really bad gymiatra. For yes. Yes. I actually do want to ask you about that because I think, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure, I think you're the only person to write a book on Typhonian magic, not from a Kenneth Grant perspective. And I'm curious where your divergence was there. If I have that correct. 
Uh, that well, that is true, and it became the reason I did that is uh, for our birthday some years ago, decades, decades ago. Uh, Stephen Flowers gave me uh, bits translations of the Greek magical Byron. and he says, you know, there's sure a lot of, a lot of spells in there about set Typhon, you know, his usual kind of in you know indirect teaching method. And that's why I say he didn't say he just said go study them. That's all you needed, right? Because if a student has enough kindling, all they need is a spark. And so I went and looked at all these spells about Set Typhon. I said, oh, there's some, there's some patterns here, some really fascinating things here. Um, and in fact, I wrote a book eventually on just the uh, figure of Set Typhon in uh, Greek Magical Pyre called The Seven Faces of Darkness. Yes. And Grant approached the, the Typhonian current with no scholarship, just none. You know, it's like, hmm, I sense the answer is Typhon. Well, good enough. And then starts writing his <laughs> stuff. You know, and then they didn't go like and says, well, what, where did this appear mythologically? How has it existed in practice in the world? No, it's just, I invented this. You know, in 1955, he wrote Gregor Gregorius, the head of the Trimtas attorney, and said, hey, Gregor, it occurs to me we are entering the Aeon of Typhon. You and I should create a school that takes care of this. And you know, Gregorius wrote back saying, I already have a school, but you are correct. It is the Aeon of Typhon. Let me pause that real quick. What This I haven't heard before. What was... Was this something that Gregorius had just decided, or was there more to that? Uh, the, from the material I've read, and, and I um, am, am very limited in my access to uh, the Fraternitas Attorney's documents, and, and the bigger problem is that the people in the Fraternitas Attorney, even today, are bound by oaths. So yeah. They can't tell you anything, um, some, sometimes ridiculous and so. Uh, he, he was beginning to look at, uh, among other things, the Greek magic papyri. And says clearly there is some force here, some some demonic demonic initiator. And so uh, when Kenneth Grant got there through uh, methods of ego annihilation, like breathing ether, uh, yes, he found the right end. He found where the door is, but didn't find any methods to getting to the door or going through the door. Uh, Grant was headed in the right direction, but then uh, didn't deal with the other problem of magic, which is taking the garbage out. And at least nine-tenths of your work as a magician is taking the garbage out. Yeah, for sure. Aeonics is always a funny one for me because I like your terminology of doors because obviously aeonics can be such like a, an ego contest. You know, my aeon is bigger than yours, but the aeon of Horus is the only one that I've found that actually has explanatory power. That's not just explanatory, but explanatory power you can't get away from, even if you don't, even if you want to, but the other ones are always interesting to me. And so I never heard, um, about any of this aeon of Typhon or how far that went other than Grant's kind of general 
um, thesis that there is also this quote unquote eternal Typhonian current that is just the formula of the opposer and the reversing a magical formula, which may just like the rest of Grant may or may not have existed anywhere except in his own imagination. Well, I mean, the problem is that, that you know, and it's interesting today, by the way, is the anniversary of Grant's death. Today uh, is. It, uh, uh, Grant's failure is he never understood that a subjective truth is not an objective truth. Yes. And therefore he could present like his fantasies as this is something that happened. Like, you know, he has this whole write-up of where he and this uh, young witch were doing this uh, sort of, I would say Cthulhuian, but you know he didn't call it Cthulhu ritual. And then this creature comes out of the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I love that one. His, you know, his, hen- his hentai story. It happened, right? <laughs> and you're like, okay, dude, you you were either severely drugged out or something is wrong if you think that this actually occurred. But then it's like it occurs in my mind what actually occurs. He just didn't didn't quite have the philosophical uh, grounding to do the work. And, and that happens a lot, right? People yeah. have some uh, overwhelming experience, but no philosophical grounding. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kenneth Grant has always struck me as somebody who's like, he's like an anime and hentai nerd that was born a couple generations too early uh, for uh, tentacle hentai. So he was trying to, he was trying to get there. Um, I believe I heard a story from, I forget where it was, that when he died, he lived in a small walk up in Golders Green, if you know this area. It's like a Jewish area in northwest London. It's a nice suburb. And he apparently had the biggest pornography collection that anyone had ever seen that he just like dwelled around and from which he based his magical states of gnosis and fantasy from, I think, which probably explains a, a few of these things. Well, I mean, one of the signs you're succeeding as a magician is you need less stimulus from the outside world instead of more. Yeah. And now we live in a world where you can get any amount of stimulus from the outside world at any time. Yeah. No, no matter how specialized and slightly freaky your tastes are. Uh, about five years ago, uh, some friends, we were joking about porn, specialized porn. And someone, you know, and someone's made the remark. Maybe he'd already looked this up. I kind of suspect that he had already knew this was there. So you know he could act dutifully surprised. Said he said, yeah, there's probably people that are into Grinch porn. <laughs> well, so we well, walked over to the computer, went to Pornhub, typed in Grinch, bam. <laughs> that is that there you have are you aware of what rule 34 is? Yeah. Yeah. There you have it. Yeah. No, this is hilarious. This is the funny thing. It's like, you know, like as, as edge lordy as the most edge lordy occultists of the 20th century were, they could not possibly predict how utterly bizarre and, and just like nuclear, I don't know, like just mutated the modern world actually is. I mean, I, even when I go back and read like the most edgy, Crowley stuff like his writings about the Garden of Eden and and things like this or or Kenneth Grant it's just like oh this is so quaint it's so like like uh, uh, it's just nostalgic and warm and fuzzy like going to grandma's house you know but uh, you know they're talking about these unbelievable grew insanity but compared to compared to the internet now it's uh, it's positively quaint 
Well, well, you know, when uh, when when Grant uh, found his way to Cthulhu, um, you know, and to Lovecraft in general, you know, the things that Lovecraft were, were most frightened of were immediate things that he seized on as, oh, this must be the the, the path of power. Uh, yes. I mean, ne- neither of them is correct, right? The otherworldly is otherworldly. Well, the and other I, thing is like a lot of the stuff Lovecraft was writing about was not necessarily otherworldly, but was like thinly veiled racist caricatures as well. So, which people are much well, more yeah, aware I mean, of now. Lovecraft was very definitely this, this highly prejudiced guy who also didn't even have any real, real, real idea what he was prejudiced against. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fact the guy is a flaming anti-Semite marries a Jew. And, and never once, never once in his writings or speaking about I mean, it, sees, it, sees a contradiction there. Right? Yeah. He was married to Sonia Green. You know, he would still write these, this, you know, horrible things suggesting the Jews are in league with the powers of darkness. You know, like your wife that's putting bread and butter on your table? Yeah, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to go back and revisit some of these these uh, towering figures as 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 time goes on. Well, we've been talking. I just realized I've been talking for two hours now. Uh, I would love to have you back on the podcast. Uh, we should probably put a pin in it for now. Okay. Um, but um, tell us, your book is is your book out? How to become a modern magus? How to become a modern magus is out. Okay, and that's from inner. That's from Destiny imprint of Inner Traditions. How can people find find your work online and beyond this book? What do you recommend they check out first? Uh, the things I think that beyond this book that I think they would like, I wrote a book on vampiric magic from traditions called Energy Magic of the Vampire. A lot of people like that. Uh, my basic uh, left-hand path book is called Uncle Setnock's Essential Guide to the Left-Hand Path. A classic. And if you're looking for some of my recent fiction, look for a book called Building Strange Temples. Ah, what's this about? It's uh, a 30-year retrospective of my Lovecraftian writing. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds super good. All right. I mean, Lovecraft only wrote Lovecraftian fiction for 20 years, and I've been doing it for nearly 40. (laughs) Your victor here is me. There you go. (laughs) That's great. All right. Well, it was lovely to have you on and hope to have you back on in the future. All right. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.